In this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be taken on a very intriguing journey with American journalist Lenora Chu. She and her husband and young son moved from the United States to Shanghai in 2010. This was at a point in time when Chinese students overall were dramatically outranking American students in math, reading, and science. Lenora Chu came to understand the way in which Chinese students were achieving uh, such impressive results. The costs that were involved in that achievement were in some respects disturbing and even in certain points shocking. She and her husband learned a great deal about some of the principal tenets of Chinese education and some of the ways in which they were similar and all of the ways in which they were different from the way we generally educate young people here in the United States. The fruits of uh, her rich experience and observation are told in her memoir called Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and The Global Race to Achieve, published by Harper Paperbacks. Lenora Chu, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So explain to our listeners uh, the circumstances uh, under which uh, you and your husband and young son found yourselves uh, in China and just how, how dramatic a, a moment, in a sense, this was in your family's life. Or was it just one more chapter of living in one more exotic and exciting place? <laughs> sure. Well, we moved from California to Shanghai, China, back in 2010, And if you remember that year, it's hard to believe now, but the economy in the U.S. was not doing well. We were sort of in the trough of of the recession, coming out of it a little bit. But China, by comparison, seemed like it was doing really well. And then in education, it was doing really, really well. It sort of came in number one in the world on this test called PISA out of the OECD in math, reading, and science. So we had basically left the U.S. and landed into Shanghai China's Trophy City, which happened to produce the world's best students, if you believe that sort of thing. And we had a little boy. So the story kind of begins when we enroll him in a local Chinese school just down the street. And you are very, very happy that you are able to do this because this is, uh, in a sense, a really prized slot. Uh, I mean, there are not many available openings. In fact, just briefly tell our listeners just sort of the arduous gauntlet you and your husband underwent, how many times you had to ask before finally a spot apparently was open for your son. Oh, sure. Phone calls, you know, walking by, trying to get a glimpse. There's a guard at the gate, you know, and of course the school's beautiful from the outside. We could never get in. So we really had to call, stop by, ask friends to write letters for us. We did all kinds of things, but we finally got an interview. (laughs) <laughs> so what was intriguing about this is that, uh, in a sense, you were unable, really forbidden, from viewing the actual educational process uh, in, the, in the classrooms of this school. Explain just how secretive a place it was in, in that respect. Sure. You know, schools here in China, they're state-run institutions. You know, this is this is the Chinese government, and it's not 
really something that allows for the casual observer. Not only that, it's a very authoritarian culture when it comes to government, when it comes to schools. And so when you have this American sort of coming around and saying, hey, I don't like the way you do this. I noticed this that I didn't like. You know, they tried to put the kibosh on that really fast. That, of course, made me more curious. <laughs> well, and, ex- and that's... And explain okay. explain some of what your your young son Rainey would sort of do and say and demonstrate at home that began to sort of fire up your your sense of parental concern that perhaps some things were happening in that classroom that uh, were not exactly to your liking. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was forced to eat an egg, which he hates eggs. You know, I could never get him to eat it. All of a sudden, his teacher had, you know, gotten him to eat this thing that he'd hated for the first three years of his life. You know, there were other things like he was learning Chinese songs with, you know, political tint, with a political tint um, that sort of raised my red flags. You know, I don't want to say that I didn't know this was going to be part of his experience, you know, but it's, it's very different, actually, it's very different. Let me start over. You know, he, he was forced to eat an egg the very first week of school, which I did not like because as someone who believes kids should be forced to do something they don't want to do, this sort of offended, I guess if you would want to call it my sort of democratic sensibilities. Um, other things like learning Chinese songs are fine. That's what we want. We want him to speak Mandarin, but not when there's, you know, a political tint to it, you know, and the whole process of adjusting to having a child in Chinese school was really just what can I live with? What am I comfortable with? And then on the flip side, what might he actually benefit from? And I really had to spend the next couple of years teasing out what was good, what was bad, and what was, in my opinion, ugly. (laughs) Mm. One of the most dramatic differences between your young son and uh, his classmates has to do with sort of the whole familial hierarchy in China that you really spell out for us. That, uh, for instance, when there's something like Grandparents' Day at school, that uh, nearly every single child would have all four grandparents there. And all four grandparents, along with the parents, would be involved in the parenting and the raising of a child. And for, uh, for you and your young son... Uh, it was a very, very different scenario, and that was just one of many ways in which your son Rainey stood out from his classmates in ways that sometimes made him uh, very uncomfortable and awkward. Yeah, I mean, there was also the fact that his Chinese teacher would call him, you know, little foreigner. He was one of, you know, he was really, he really stood out in many, many ways. Another way, like you said, he didn't have any grandparents in town. He only had me. So there were constant daily reminders that, you know, he was an American in a Chinese school, not only because of his nationality, but also culturally. And, and you know, in some sense that made this narrative, you know, conflict makes for a good story, right? And how do you, as a human being, as, as a parent, deal with this conflict? I'm mm-hmm. sure some people would have gone running for the hills. <laughs> as you uh, observe the teaching that went on in a in another school called Harmony Kindergarten. I mean, there you mm-hmm. were per- permitted to actually view what was going on. You observed one moment that I thought was especially fascinating. It was uh, a moment when uh, these children were being lined up and one by one dismissed. And uh, as far as you could tell, 
the decision about which child is dismissed next would have nothing to do with how still they were standing. They were all standing perfectly still as they were supposed to, hence of themselves and so on. But it was, it appeared to be completely arbitrary. And after watching this for a while, you, you said, I understood then, before long, that arbitrariness was the point and identified the exercise for what it was, a demonstration of who was in charge. <laughs> and it sounds like yeah. uh, both at this school you visited and, and at the school that your, that your little boy was attending, that this was of paramount importance. Teacher knows best. I mean, that's the number one lesson when you are in this Chinese school system. Teacher knows best. Administrators know best. And, you know, after seeing a few warning signals, you know, with my son's school, I tried to get in for an observation. And, of course, I was denied. So then I do what journalists do, which is ask questions, find other people to talk to. And I eventually, as you said, had gotten into this other kindergarten and uh, what I what I saw was was somewhat shocking. Um, you had the teacher marching around, screaming at her children. These are three year olds on their first day of preschool, um, being planted forcibly into chairs, being asked to draw rain in exactly one fashion, which is from the top to the bottom of the page, and from the right to the left. You know, this was the an authoritarian classroom, and I realized before long exactly what my son probably was dealing with. Now, I have to say, the book then goes into this narrative, you know, where is China trying to change? And to be fair, you know, people in China, they travel now, they travel widely, especially in Shanghai, Beijing. They've been outward looking in education for quite some time. And they understand that the top down authoritarian classroom isn't necessarily good for the child. So they are trying to reform some of these things, mm. but perhaps not fast enough. Not fast enough. <laughs> right, not fast enough to suit you, certainly. <laughs> right, right, sure. It depends. It depends on what kind of classroom you're in. So. Right, absolutely. I want to make sure we uh, to give you a chance to talk about the way in which you and your husband uh, have chosen to live in in China. Uh, quite different from from many foreigners, you say, who live in modern Shanghai, brought there by various uh, firms. You say, in other words, many of these people try to insulate themselves from the experience of China as much as they possibly could. And uh, you and your husband, Rob, wanted to be another type of foreigner in China altogether. So how have you tried to live in China that would be different from the experience of many, many others that, to whom you're referring there in that passage? It just seemed to me in a lot of ways, it would be a shame if we didn't have Chinese friends, if my son also did not learn to speak Mandarin. You know, it, you know it's not like I thought about going local, you know, but it just, we're here and there are people in the U.S. who pay plenty of money to have a Mandarin-speaking nanny, and Chinese immersion schools are now becoming popular. And we're in Shanghai. And not only that, it's you know reputed to have some of the best schools in the country. I just wanted to experience this culture in a way that wasn't so insular, you know, in a way that I've seen other foreigners do it. Um, so that was our goal. Mm. Why not? Mm-hmm. One danger of living in a place like Shanghai is the quality of the air. Uh, the pollution there mm-hmm. is quite serious, and it sounds like your son Rainey has contended with with asthma. And uh, 
First of all, explain to our listeners how you would know just from kind of looking at uh, something in the neighborhood <laughs> that that was a good day or a not good day in terms of air quality uh, uh, in, in your city and uh, the concerns that, uh, that came up when it came to the matter of medication uh, at, at, at your son's school. Oh, sure. Um, you know, in the wintertime, the weather patterns are such that sometimes it gets very polluted. And, you know, people who live here who are concerned about air quality, we have monitors in our house, we have air filters. And oftentimes I could tell how good the air was by looking out the window. And if I can see Jing'an Temple, which is this sort of historic monument in Shanghai, if I can actually see it outside my window, it's about a mile away. That means it's a good day. But many times in, in December, you can't see it at all, you know, and that means the air, they are so polluted, you really, you know, some days you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. That's rare. It's getting more and more rare. But there was a time back in 2013, 2014, where it was incredibly polluted. They called it airpocalypse. And that was what we were dealing with, you know, living here in Shanghai. My son, he's outgrown it now, but at the time he was dealing with some early onset asthma, I guess if you could call it that, and uh, tried to get the teacher to make some accommodations for him. But of course, she basically said, we don't do that. You know, it's the rights of the group over the rights of the individual. And I think that is one defining difference in the culture here. Right. So for instance, you were really concerned that that Rainey's asthma medication, which he might have a very acute need of at some point, uh, if it's stored in the nurse's office, that is far away from the classroom and too far away for your comfort. But they were not willing to store that asthma medication even safely in a, in a drawer. Right. Yeah. The, the point was, you know, the medication needs, in an emergency situation, you need to be close enough to be able to access it. But, you know, the point of that story, they said, no, you know, we have our rules and they cannot be bent. And the point of the story is they just don't make accommodations for people. You know, they don't make accommodations for the individual. And and really, I came away thinking, huh, you, you know, am I going to deal with the system as it's delivered to me or am I going to pull out or am I going to try to fight? And it was these moments that I was having really throughout the narrative um, and in examining some of these conflicts, you understand China a bit better, right? I mean, if they're making accommodations for, say, every one of those 35 kids in the classroom, the teacher was going to spend, you know, more time making accommodations than teaching. And that was her point when she replied to me, you know, in, in the way that she did. So, I thought an especially interesting chapter was the chapter called No Rewards for Second Place, which delves into the whole matter of competition and the way in which the ranking of children is handled very, very differently in China than it tends to be here in America, where you write, uh, Americans generally hold a child's regard for self and emotional evaluation of one's own worth with feather-soft gloves as if it were a panda cub which requires special care because it is blind at birth and and immobile and unable to feed itself. A child's self-esteem is treated almost as a physical organ, nearly as important as the beating heart. And, of course, towards that end, in many situations, you find these uh, 
find these scenarios in which every child who participates gets a trophy, even if they finish last and so on. I mean, just trying to be so careful with peop- with young children's feelings and their self-esteem and so on. Not so in China. You call the, the approach in China much more utilitarian. Explain to our listeners what I'm talking about and the way in which rankings were part of everything and, and handled in in such straightforward fashion. Yeah, you know, self-esteem doesn't, it isn't really something that they talk a lot about a lot in this culture. You know, a grade is a grade, a score is a score. A kid is either fast or they're not. They score well in math or they don't. You know, the Chinese that I know are not worried about how, you know, little Ming will feel if he gets a 67 in math. And part of that is because I found in my research that they really believe in this connection between effort and results, effort and results, right? You work hard in math or in sports or whatever it is, and you get results. What I found, I found a study actually that showed that most Americans actually believe the opposite. They believe in talent and results. And what that means is that kids, no, you know, there's, you've, we've lost the emphasis on hard work in the classroom in the U.S. by comparison. Right? You're looking at a kid who's six and thinking, oh, they might not have the genetics to do math, instead of looking at that kid and saying, oh, if he works hard, he's going to get his multiplication tables. And, and to me, that all relates to self-esteem. When we think about talent and its connection to academics, we're actually giving up on a whole host of kids who might actually learn something with a little bit of work. So, you know, that is a big difference in the culture. And by worrying too much about self-esteem, we're actually letting up on the gas pedal in the classroom in the U.S. in some sense because we just don't believe every kid can get it. And not only that, if they don't get it, it's not their fault, so let's not make them feel bad about it. That's where the self-esteem argument can become so damaging, I think. Hmm. Interesting. Over there in our culture, yeah. Right. So... One of the things that is most interesting about your book, Little Soldiers, is that uh, uh, it is so interesting for you to sort of chart the experience of your your young son, Rainey, and the way in which his attitudes really change about school and 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 about China, about living in China. Uh, and uh, without giving too much away, there's kind of a dramatic moment in the second section of the book when you're when your little boy one day just announces, I like China better than the United States. <laughs> He's just kind of arrived at that at that choice. And one thinks back to earlier in the book when over and over again he would tell you how much he hated school, how much he hated school. Uh, just talk yeah. for a moment about, in a sense, kind of the interesting journey uh, that your young boy, Rainey, took and uh, how in a sense, disconcerting it was to not always know all that much about what was causing some of these changes in his, in his attitude. You know, it's, it's funny. Now he's completely opposite. I mean, he's very well aware that he's American, and that is the culture where he feels most comfortable. It makes sense. He is American. You know, it's really hard to assimilate in fully into Chinese culture, you're always going to be the foreigner. And we spend a lot of time in the U.S. during the summertime. We still live in Shanghai now. Um, that's where we're conducting this interview. 
But when we spend time in the U.S., it's just he feels more comfortable there. He feels more comfortable speaking English. He plays a lot of sports. He's on the baseball team. He's on the soccer team. And so it's very clear in his mind now, especially as he's approaching 10 years old, you know, which country is his own. But early on, when he was three, when he was four, when he was five, you know, he as he was learning the Chinese language, there was all this other stuff that came with it, this nationalism that comes into the classroom. And, you know, it was something that we really had to talk to him about. One of the striking moments in the uh, in the book is when you our first back in the United States, I, I think on summer break. And it was mm-hmm. while, when you were back in America that in a sense you began to kind of, uh, you, you were in a position to assess uh, young Rainey's progress and, uh, and the way in which he related to uh, his peers uh, in the United States. Uh, and maybe we're beginning to see, in a sense, maybe some of the hallmarks of the education that he was receiving. Just talk for a moment about how interesting it was for you to see your son in America with other American children of his age. Sure. It's true. You know, well, at that young age, you know, when I wrote that scene, he's five or six years old. He was pretty well behaved and he knew to say hello to his elders you know, when he came down to the breakfast table, if we're visiting somebody, he knew that teachers were to be respected. He knew he was to pack his own backpack for school. All these little behaviors that they emphasize in China, that education is important, that, you know, respecting your elders is important. I was perfectly happy that he learned these lessons. You know, it's not something I had to teach him. I don't think that's really part of the American lexicon anymore, you know, respecting your teachers taking responsibility for your own school books. I mean, I think I'm sort of generalizing here, but, you know, we have lost a little bit of that respect for education. You know, the research studies show that. And I love that he's absorbed that, that from his time here in China. The other thing is, now that he's approaching 10, he's doing math at a very high level. That's another thing the Chinese school system does really well is the way that they teach math. You know, primary school teachers math teachers in in china teach only math whereas in the u.s you'll have a first grade teacher teaching not only math but art and english and pretty much everything else we expect our american teachers to be generalists but in china they specialize from a very early age and i think there are benefits to that so some of these things i think that he has benefited from and and hopefully they stay with him Hmm. i know that one of the things that concerned you the most was the way in which the typical classroom in China uh, promotes conformity more Mm -hmm. than what we think of as creativity. And you describe a scene, I think this is when you're visiting Harmony Kindergarten, and you have a room full of children that are supposed to be drawing pictures of rain. And the whole point of this exercise is to make the raindrops look exactly the same, exactly like raindrops. And, you know, there's to be no experimentation. I mean, the only artwork that is praised are the ones that are just meticulous and exactly what we sort of expect raindrops to look like. And and you sort of bridled against that, that notion that that kind of an exercise should be about, in a sense coloring perfectly within the lines and doing exactly what is expected. I mean, it runs counter to what we think of as what creativity is all about. And yet, I get the sense from reading your book that you began to see that uh, 
even in a scenario where conformity is so prized that uh, in many cases children would find small, subtle ways to be creative. Uh, I mean, and, and, and to express themselves as individuals. And perhaps in a really strange, unexpected way, maybe creativity was being fostered in, in a very effective way that it might actually not be in some freewheeling space where anything goes and do whatever you want to do. I mean, you know, that, that, yes, that's creative, but maybe not creative maybe in quite as meaningful a way or I'm not sure but it certainly seems like it challenged some of your notions about what creativity is and how one fosters it sure you know what I found is I've given book talks in maybe 15 16 American cities now also here in China and Sid you know in, in Australia New Zealand and I've noticed that people always say the Chinese have no creativity they're not creative they're rote learning robots I hear that a lot. But then when you ask people to define what creativity is, they often can't answer. And there is actually a definition. The creative process is one in which you come up with something original that also has value. So it's not about just doing something a different way. It actually has to have value. In other words, it has to advance the conversation, you know, advance your understanding in some way. Um, you know, our paragon of creative innovation is, is Steve Jobs. You know, he created products that pretty much upended industries as we know it, right? That is the definition, original and also has value. But here's the thing. The Chinese, you can actually break that down into three components. You actually have to have knowledge to be able to do that. You know, in, in America, we overemphasize the, the original thinking part, the think different, the Apple slogan, you know, doing something differently. And we all talk about Steve Jobs as the college dropout. He did it so differently. Isn't he bold? But we forget he actually had a lot of knowledge when it comes to electronics, computers, and that sort of thing. And so when you look at the Chinese, I believe it's fair to say that they have a huge focus on the knowledge portion of education. They're not as good as encouraging kids to be original and to challenge the norm. But on the flip side... American culture, we very much emphasize the outside-the-box thinking. But, hey, you know what? Maybe we're getting a little bit too far away from knowledge, imparting knowledge in the classroom, and the importance of expertise in a particular domain. So it's, you know, just another way of looking at creativity. You could say that the Chinese kind of come at it from the other direction. You know, knowledge first and original thinking later and we in America overemphasize the original thinking, the outside-the-box mm. thinking. So it's not that there is no creativity. It's just that they slice it differently here in China. Um, and uh, they're working pretty hard on the, on the areas in which they're deficient. Right. To finish Does that make up, any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, and I, I really appreciate the fact that uh, you, you, you're bringing to light sort of the complexity of it. And, and I think creativity is something that we tend to be, in a sense, really sloppy about, uh, or sloppy mm-hmm. and careless about in terms of, of, of defining exactly what it is and certainly in understanding uh, what, what fosters to, it and nurtures it. it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, um, to, to finish out, I, I wonder if you would just say a word about just the nation of China itself uh, and some of the challenges that its people 
are facing. And particularly, in particular, the young people, the kind of challenges that they are facing uh, in this sort of highly competitive landscape, uh, desperate for opportunities and desperate for them, in a sense, from, from a very, very early age. I mean, what kind of toll does that take uh, mm-hmm. uh, emotionally yeah, and mentally? You know, the, tr- the truth is there are nearly half a million Chinese coming to the U.S. every year for schooling. And most people still believe the ultimate you know, educational experience is to head abroad for some part of it, right? That's changing in, in starting to change, but for the most part still, most Chinese with means and resources are going to go abroad for part of their education, and oftentimes they look to the U.S. Um, I think the challenge, you know, growing up in China is, oh gosh, I mean, it depends on who you are. There's so much inequality here that doesn't get talked about. Um, If you're growing up in rural Hunan province, one of the poorest provinces in China, there's still a lot of poverty here, but you don't hear about that. And if you're one of those kids versus someone in Shanghai, there's a huge gap that you have to contend with. There's a lot of inequality in the system. And also, it's really test-focused. You know, in the upper years, all you're doing is studying for tests, and that's extremely taxing for these kids, too. So in all, I think that we are very lucky in the U.S. to have choices. I'm not to say that there's not to say there isn't, you know, crippling inequality in the system there, too. But for the most part, you know, we educate most children. We pretend that we educate all children. And in China, you have half of these kids dropping out of the normal school system by the time high school comes around. So that there's a lot of problems that China still has to deal with in education. Hmm. Well, it is so great to read a book like yours in which you uh, give us uh, your very uh, interesting perspective as an American living there, as a uh, concerned mother, uh, wanting to uh, see to it that uh, that uh, that your child receives the the very best educational experience that is possible, and of course, again and again, I think one of the things that makes your book especially interesting and endearing is that you're very honest about, in mm-hmm. a sense, your own awkwardness. Uh, the fact <laughs> that uh, I mean, really and truly, the fact that I mean. You, you and your husband willingly, enthusiastically enrolled your, your, your son in this uh, important school, uh, and then you turn right around and question its methods and challenge its teachers and so on in a way that they do not appreciate. And I just like the way in which you kind of share these experiences and describe them to us with, with such honesty and, and not with, in a sense, the wrong kind of self-righteousness. I mean... Uh, you're kind of struggling and grappling and learning uh, along with everybody else in this uh, scenario. Uh, and, and I want to compliment you for, for telling the story in that way. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for reading. <laughs> it's a great I book. Hope, I hope everybody learns a little bit more about you know, education in China. And you know, China is an important country. It's 1.3 billion people. We're now in a trade war. The U.S. and China are now in, you know, embarked in a trade war. What are the Chinese thinking? What is the culture about? Why does Xi Jinping, the leader of the Communist Party, why does he behave the way that he does? And you'll learn all of these things by reading Little Soldiers, because it all starts with education, right? What happens in the classroom? So thanks for this opportunity. 
You're very welcome. I want to remind our listeners the book is Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve, available now in paperback from Harper. Lenora Chu, thank you so much for writing this wonderful book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. Best wishes to you and your family. Thanks so much. Cheers.